Welcome to Raise and Deploy, a podcast dedicated to international investments with insights from the world's leading investment professionals from New York to Timbuktu. Each episode, we bring on a new guest to discuss the trials and tribulations that occur when seeking substantial returns in foreign markets. We cover the full life cycle of an investment, from the moment you contemplate raising capital offshore to the final check cashed on the returns. Today, we sit down with macro expert Howard Kurtz of Lilypond Capital. Howard tells us how he began his professional finance career on the back of a card game before becoming managing director at Lehman Brothers and heading up their multi-markets proprietary trading unit. He discusses cartel involvement in the Latin American debt crisis, the technological changes in the investing world, and how cryptocurrency may or may not play a role in the future of international finance. Let's get into it. Howard, welcome to Raise and Deploy, the podcast. Uh, thank you so much for being on. Um, we've been uh, trying to get this organized for a couple of weeks now, so I appreciate you uh, jumping on. Um, why don't you, just to, to kind of kick things off, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about how you got your start in the industry and uh, what brings you up to uh, today? Yeah, it's great to be here. Thanks so much for uh, for inviting me. Um Oddly enough, I actually got my first idea about uh, getting into currency trading in university, which in 1979 was kind of a rare place to be. Um, I was invited to play bridge uh, with some Wharton professors who needed a fourth, who promised me free beers. Um, one of them asked me what I was doing when I graduated, uh, told him I wasn't sure, and he said, well, by the way, you play bridge, you should consider getting into currency trading. I think you have a great mind for it. He ended up becoming my senior advisor. I did a, a thesis on covered interest rate arbitrage. Um, and, uh, you know, when I got out of school, uh, I really wrote three old school letters to the treasurers of Bank of America, JP Morgan, and, uh, and Citibank uh, saying that, you know, I wanted to get into currency trading and uh, would they consider it? And one said, you know, forget it. One said, maybe. And the other said, you're higher. Yeah. It, it seemed like it was a lot easier uh, back then than it is now. <laughs> um, but yeah, so um, that's how I got into it. And it's really been sort of at the core of what my career has been, you know, for, for 40 years. I, I'm a self-proclaimed expert in this space. Um, and I think I've seen, you know, iterations and cycles that, um, you know, keep repeating itself but are always very very different that's uh that's amazing and uh we look too dissimilar in the way that we got our starts so i got my start at the horse races i picked the winner at a horse race for my uh uh for my dad's friend who was a ceo of an fx uh, trading company so not not too dissimilar um right. certainly seen a couple of cycles as well in my career as well that's amazing i love stories like that um you know sharing initiative and, and, and getting opportunities like that is amazing uh so uh, that was obviously the start um obviously you've uh, done a number of things since then um why don't we talk about some of the kind of the earliest successes of your career and what really put you on the map yeah i mean i think that um the market you know, if you trace the development of the market through the 80s and even the 90s, um, you know, one thing that was fairly absent from it, although, you know, and it took a while for it to gather momentum was technology. And so there were constantly dislocations. Um, you know, the, the system was run through cash brokerage system of, of voice brokers. 
Um, there was, uh, you know, significant arbitrage opportunities available between the futures and the and the, the cash exchanges, uh, the forward markets. Um, and it really took, uh, you know, electronic broking to to sort of begin to tie together and make it more institutional. It was really kind of a Wild West network. And, you know, it's interesting that um, because I got involved with uh, uh, providing a little bit of backing to a few early crypto trading firms and the, the parallels from what I saw in the 1980s in currency trading to what guys were doing. And in fact, there was a lot of migration from ex-currency traders into the crypto trading world um, was very, very similar. There was exchange arbitrage um, that was measured in multiple percent rather than fractions of a percent in the crypto space. And there, you know, there was real criti critical uh, settlement risk and, and credit risks that you were taking uh, that were meaningful, but there were uh, a lot of funds that really started in the crypto space on, on that background. Um, so, you know, as uh, as um, I, you know, my career developed sort of from a, a trader to a manager of traders, uh, originally Bank of America, then to Lehman Brothers, um, you know, I, I began to look at the market more as an investor rather than as a trader. And my responsibilities and my outlook on it became more and more fundamentally driven, uh, you know, trying to get a better understanding of the macroeconomics. And I think, you know, that provided me with a little bit, I thought, as a competitive advantage. Um, my background was in economics, finance, international economics. And I think I got the joke half the time, at least, that um, sometimes took other people a little bit longer. And I think that, that proved to be a great um, asset. Um, when I really got to Lehman, I didn't actually get there as the manager of the traders. I, I managed a group of um, capital committers managing principal risk for the firm, which gave us kind of a, uh, a blank piece of paper to wander wherever we wanted to. Um, and wander we did. Um, and I think that each of the portfolio managers that were part of that group had different expertise. Um, some came from interest rate background, swaps background, uh, others a commodities background, uh, and mine more of a foreign exchange background, and there were others in there. And one of the things that I started to do uh, was get more integrated in, um, in corporate finance and uh, larger finance transactions as the firms did. And I, after when I initially got there, I had uh, done some transactions outside of the firm right before I got to Lehman uh, for one of the wealthiest private families that I was an advisor to. And they were doing a lot of investments in Mexico that was a product of the restructuring of the Brady bonds or, or what became the Brady bonds. It was the quasi-defaulted corporate uh, sovereign debt of Argentina and specifically Mexico. And um, it provided an incredible opportunity with, with what looked like almost a de facto sovereign guarantee to these transactions that were offering incredible risk premium. And smart investors, including the family I was advising, um, and onto 
Soros, more capital, uh, some of the biggest hedge funds, and eventually um, that you know the, the proper hedge fund network became very involved in. And there was a a flood of money that came into the space in the early '90s, of which I thought that I was um, uh, slightly ahead of. And we ended up getting very, very involved in building a very big book there. Um, uh, and we had we actually took an important step, which all which which was sort of out of our natural remit as we became a market maker for a lot of people in these transactions. So even though we really weren't working as part of that trading business at Lehman, our book and our information and our access to liquidity became so significant that um, we were being used to offset transactions. So when you know big block transactions came in, investors came in, we were able to price those things effectively. So you know what occurred to me, if nothing else, is that I in in what was a, a growing emerging market is that I felt like we had achieved a certain critical mass of knowledge. Um, if nothing else, um, we didn't have you know no one individual is going to move the markets necessarily, but we had a, a lot of information coming to us from a lot of sources. And in fact, one point we were told actually by the Central Bank of Mexico that we were the single largest investor in the country, um, which wow. from a sort of five person group um, was both, you know, very flattering and frightening. Did you have, do you remember the, uh, the, the, the total amount that you were doing uh, over there? Like what was kind of like an average um, position? Well, that you had? Yeah. I mean, I remember one uh, for two weeks in a row there used to be a weekly auction of mexican treasury bills called setes um and two weeks in a row we took down almost 50 percent of the entire auction so you know that sort of gives it in magnitude um you know the book the total book was large it was you know it was over a billion um so it was um you know these are 1993 dollars so a uh, billion dollars is actually a lot of money back then yeah <laughs> um and and so you know we felt like we had our pulse on um on a lot of knowledge and a lot of flow yeah you mentioned um something that resonates a lot with with me we believe there is there are a number of managers out there that have foreign currency as a byproduct. And a lot of the people I think that are going to be listening to this, this podcast are going to be thinking investment first, currency later. Um, you made an entire living on currency first. Uh, what can we learn from you specifically on how you tackle currency problems, um, whether that be from a hedging perspective or from a um, speculation perspective that could be borrowed um, with these huge managers now that are investing all over the world, same strategy, uh, you know, maybe credit, maybe private equity, um, but they're now going into places like Brazil uh, and Nigeria. Yeah, you know, I think it's, I think it's important to understand what you know and what you don't know. And you know, the same professor who recommended I got into this business once told me. You know, you get your bachelor's degree, you learned a little bit about a whole bunch of things. You get your master's, you've learned more about uh, more specialized things. And by the time you get your PhD, you've learned a tremendous amount about absolutely nothing. 
Um, and I feel like in some respects, you know, my expertise in currencies, uh, you know, sometimes forced me to think too narrowly. Um, and I think that uh, corporate treasurers or anybody who's doing um, large international transactions kind of have to understand, you know, where they get their information from. Like for me, it was always very important to home grow as much as I could. I had an advisory board of people from the public sector, the former central bank head of Brazil was on my advisory board. Um, uh, was she the finance minister? Sorry, the former finance minister of Brazil, many years. <laughs> um, you know, was on our advisory board. Uh, we used to pay, there used to be a group of consultants that could put together, you know, dinners for 10 people with, you know, ECB head with a senior Fed official. Um, it, you know, became, you know, getting kernels of knowledge to give you small, definable edges. I think is something that we had the luxury of doing being highly specialized. If you're talking about a corporate treasurer, he's going to most likely have to rely upon someone else to do that for him. And he can either do that passively by having invested in our hedge fund. And we saw some of that. Um, and I'm not plugging that anymore because the fund's not there. Um, but, or he can hire people like yourselves, for example, who, do this both fundamentally and empirically. And you can get to the same place both ways. It's just understanding how you got to that place and how you're using that information. So, you know, I'm very respectful of both approaches and how each of these approaches can analyze data. But you have to understand, you know, what you're dealing with, how you got there, and then how much it matters. You know, if you think of the not to, to go on about this, but if you think about what the present value of any transaction is, it's, it's you know, not only to expect a future cash flows discounted by some factor, but it really should be also discounted by expected volatility. It doesn't necessarily figure into most people's formula, but, you know, something that is low volatility at a 5% discount rate, if you use that, Versus something that has a big currency element that has 30%, you know, standard deviation annually is that present value is going to be a whole lot less because of the risks associated with that transaction. You know, you need an empirical technology to derive that. You need to understand skew. You need to understand optionality. You need to understand all these things, you know, in combination with the fundamental understanding to, to get you there. Completely agree. Couldn't, couldn't have said it better myself. The the thing that we've seen as well is the ability to test this in different market environments, add the SKUs, add the the black swan events um, that we seem to be seeing more and more of, um, and being able to stress test this on an ongoing basis. You, know, you mentioned uh, passive hedging versus active hedging and dynamic hedging, um, something that we truly do believe that everyone should be able to to ultimately have access to. Uh, the problem is, is when you start that that wheel in motion, you can't stop it. You have to continue doing it. And uh, again, if you're outsourcing that or don't have the in-house expertise to do that, you could be opening up a can of worms that you just simply can't control. Uh, so it is, you know, it, it, it's not a... Um, a mouthful that you want to be biting for in full, right? You have to be careful. 
Yeah, I mean, if you want me to provide an epilogue to the, the Mexico story, that should scare sufficiently scare the hell out of your uh, your corporate treasurers. Is that late in the process? After I realized there was a big problem in Mexico, and we started, you know, we had the capability. There was no forward market. We had the capability of creating synthetic shorts, which we did across the currency swaps and Brady bonds. Lehman was very involved in underwriting two very large bonds that uh, originated from the largest, well, the wealthiest man, without mentioning his name, in Mexico, had bought two toll roads during the late crises of the 80s that went from Cuernavaca to Toluca and Mexico City. And it was like somebody owning the New York State Thruway. Um, and he was basically cashing out at at a 15 or 20x of what he had paid for these rights to the toll road. And he was issuing US dollar bonds that were being serviced by Mexican peso tolls. And it, Lehman, and these are significant issues. They were four and $800 million a piece. Um, and when Lehman was underwriting these, and I, like I said, the bridge that I had, to, the corporate finance bridge, I said, you know, this is a problem. And, you know, the risk of default here, even though they were indexed to inflation in pesos, um, is not, it's not trivial. Uh, so we packed up a team. We went down to Mexico city, uh, spent, uh, four days prior to going, developing hedging scenarios, both through forward swaps, uh, vanilla options, you know, uh, second generation options, all sorts of things. Um, brought it to the underwriting team in Mexico, and I'll, I'll never forget this meeting. And went in there and this gentleman came in, whose name is obviously very familiar, who I don't want to mention now. Um, uh, looked at the cost associated with trying to hedge two to five year forward peso revenues into dollar liabilities, left the room, uh, his team left, they came back 15 minutes later and they said, um, we'd like to take you to the airport. Literally put me in a car, took me to the airport and, and I was gone. And back then in Mexico, you didn't kind of argue with that service. Um, absolutely not. And I came back, I was sitting there on the plane on the way back saying, you know, this is going to be a big problem. The hubris and the unwillingness of people to consider the potential risks seriously here. It was just a, a very big information piece that other people didn't have. And then when I, you know, that only mattered when things started turning down and when the issue became about their ability to have enough dollar reserves to keep the peso, which at the time was, had, you know, had a, like a, a peg or a quasi peg to the U.S. dollar. It, I knew that this would be, you know, a very, very dramatic event if there was going to be an event at all. And, wow. you know, the, the rest is history. Absolutely. Uh, so. Where are the similarities that you're seeing right now? I mean, this is obviously a really specific example with Mexico. You see um, the younger brother that is Brazil now coming up and, and you know, really pushing to uh, middle class, attracting a lot of FDI into the region. Um, you know, inflation is rampant across Latin America, not just Latin America now, around the world. 
Is there anything that you can see that is similar to back then now? Any opportunities that you're seeing, both positive and negative, you know, short or long? Uh, any of these uh, these emerging market regions in particular? I mean, obviously, it's going to be most acute as it was in, in Mexico back then, where there's restrictions on capital flows. Um, and I would say, you know, the places that I've probably worried most about are places like Nigeria, um, Hong Kong, um, and maybe, you know, Argentina, that story's kind of been written already. But, you know, some of those countries have um, allowed a reasonable amount of free flow of capital. And, you know, it's just like a pressure valve. It's like, you know, if your policy is not well supported by your by your cash flows, like at the corporate level or at the sovereign level, then there's going to be a devaluing of the underlying asset, whether it's your company or your currency, for example. And um, you, know, you can choose how to face off against that. There's either sort of the death of a thousand cuts, allowing for a gradual depreciation of your currency, um, like you see in Latin America, you know, episodically or, or you know, like now, um, or there's the beheading, um, which, you know, is possible in places where you have maxi devaluations in a couple of places in Africa. We've seen it in Egypt. We've seen it in Nigeria. Um, and I suspect we're probably going to see some form of that in, in Hong Kong at some point in the future. Uh, any other uh, countries in particular, you mentioned Nigeria, but any other countries in particular that have, have stood out to you as someone that should be opening up the doors to, to investment and, and, and staying open? You know, I think that, um, you know, I'm very bullish on battery technology, whether it's lithium or some of the derivatives. And so there's certainly countries that are involved in, you know, natural resource production, Chile, Um, You know, for example, and they've got a pretty sophisticated market. They borrowed internationally. Their dollar debt trades well. Um, You know, it's it's not perfect, but it's it's certainly um, has progressed very far. Um, South Africa is almost on the other side where their capital markets is better and more sophisticated than what their government has done. If you look at the government's borrowing in South Africa and the quasi-sovereign debt in South Africa, um, I think it's I think there there are more problems with it um, sometimes. But um, you know, I mean there's you know nothing else that I, I would think immediately that uh, I, I would see is super investable just on that basis. So we unpacked some of this earlier, but with uh, the US in the situation that's in with crypto uh, ultimately failing to this point, do you think we'll ever see in the short term a alternative to the US uh, dollar as a safe haven currency? And maybe explain a little bit about you know what a safe haven currency um, is, how it t- tends to act, and maybe compare it to some of the other uh, examples that you've um, you've seen in your career as well. Um. Yeah, I mean, in some respects, it's almost an oxymoron. But, you know, when I started my career and when I was first reading up about this, um, the British pound was considered probably uh, a better safe haven currency. It was 
had just transitioned to the dollar after sort of the debacle of the 70s, moving off the gold standard um, and everything like that. And um, I think that there is important for there to be the concept of a set haven currency, um, whether it's U.S. dollar or, or any other group of currencies, you know, if that's possible. Um, I don't necessarily see this being a private market solution. In other words, I, I think with the Federal Reserve uh, or other central bank being the lender of last resort and having the ability to create currency if it needs to is a material difference than minting Bitcoin. Uh, and I think that, um, I think there's a lot of use for blockchain but you know, to go back as whether it is a proper store of value or an effective medium of exchange, I think it could be a little bit of both, but I don't think ultimately it'll be all that. Uh, you know, I think there's a great value to be played to be placed in having a trustless solution without friction. But and that's a great, great idea, unless something goes wrong. <laughs> and the, sorry. Stuff happens, you know. And when stuff happens, who do you call? Yeah, you know, straight back. <laughs> Just go back, back to mommy and daddy. Yeah. Uh, with with regards to um, uh, the the basket currencies, uh, a lot of um, research has been done into the the SDR weighting by the IMF. Uh, and taking kind of a piece uh, from from their playbook and determining, you know, I think actually LibraCoin was, you know, the Facebook um, uh, currency that they were looking at doing something similar with. We've done some research on it. Do you think, uh, I mean, obviously the IMF has the, have their own agenda with their SDR uh, weightings. Do you think there's something along the lines there where you're backing it with a fiat currency, central banks, CBDCs, uh, where it's about, you know, just ultimately getting in and out of these currencies in a more organized, algorithmic way uh, for the sake of, for the sake of a stablecoin. Um, I like the stablecoin idea, and I don't really know who should be the backstop. Uh, you know, in terms of the governance issues, for saying, you know, what is this actually backed by? But I think conceptually, that works for me, and I think. You know, I know uh, what Circle has done, and Jeremy and a couple other uh, agendas on this. And I think so. I think that that has a quasi-frictionless place in finance. Um, so I, I, I like that. The SDR is like uh, an egg that's never going to hatch, as far as I'm concerned, in terms of being a meaningful. Uh, it's it's a central bank to central bank tool for the IMF or whoever to create units of. Uh, liability or asset with, you know, like almost an IOU. Um, you know, and, and really, if you look at what the financial markets have done in the currency sphere, and if you were to regress overall volatility and, and determine, you know, like how its correlation evolved over the last year or 10 years or 20 years, the market is doing this for us. You know, it's almost creating a basket and, it, you know, that you know when 
certain group of currencies or many currencies are going to be off against the dollar or up against the dollar, whatever. And so do you really need to create a, a synthetic you know, basket that's got hard and fast rules that somebody has to maintain that, you know, has to be defended if something happens, you know, episodically? I, I don't see it. Very, very interesting. I think that's a really strong uh, place to, to end the conversation. Um, I think that was great. Uh, was there anything that you wanted to say that you didn't say, Howard? Um, anything that you want to leave like the listeners with regards to this cycle of currency risk that we're going through, of currency volatility that we're going through? Is there anything that you'd like to kind of just you know do like a one, two, three on? Like you know, these are the three things that you want to uh, think about. Yeah, I mean, I would say you know probably the most important thing I would say is that this new cycle an importance of currency volatility and understanding hedging objectives and things like that should not be underestimated. You know, the confluence of interest rate and macroeconomic policies that we were, we had the luxury of living through for the last sort of 15 years is kind of reached a, a, an inflection point. And that inflection point will require people to be much more mindful of the exposures that they have, how they're going about quantifying and hedging those. And um, and so, you know, they should employ whatever means they can internally, externally, to make sure that, you know, the tail is not leaving the dog, uh, as it were. Um, Absolutely. So, you know, I mean, other than that, um, you know, race or any particular currency or anything like that, it's, you know, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, I always end the uh, the podcast like this. Is there anyone that you would like to thank for helping you get to where you are now? Anyone that we should be having a conversation with uh, and potentially interviewing on this podcast? Um, I guess it'd be uh, Professor David Marston at the Wharton School. <laughs> he got me down an interesting path and uh, just anecdotally, I accepted a job as a financial analyst at Champion International Paper Company in Cincinnati. And it worked out for my g- girlfriend, who became my wife in New York City, and in, and uh, a potential job at the New York Federal Reserve. I would have ended up in a very different path. <laughs> definitely. Definitely. You never told me. Did you end up winning the, uh, the hand at, at Bridge? The hand? No. I end up losing, well... I had a very strong partner usually, uh, but uh, what I did win was a lot of free beers. There we go. There we go. <laughs> All right. Well, I hope uh, hope you uh, have a uh, great rest of your day. That was amazing. I really appreciated you taking us through that. Uh, great speaking, so Yeah. Take care. Thanks for tuning in to Raise and Deploy, the international investing podcast brought to you by Diaglo, the go-to FX platform for global investors. In this episode, we sat down with Howard Kurtz, the founder and CEO of Lily Pond Capital Management. He walked through his time at Lehman Brothers and what followed, how to take into account currency shifts and what regions seem most right for investment. One key takeaway for me is how integral central bank capital restrictions are when deciding which emerging markets you should invest in. Chile, Brazil, and Mexico are currently leading the way here with strong fintech and challenger bank ecosystems. Pakistan, South Africa, and Nigeria are all struggling here and arguably have a lot of work to do. We hope that you enjoyed this episode and are looking forward to the next one. 
If you or anyone you know has experience investing internationally, we would love to hear from you. Please reach out to us at jb at diaglo.com.